What if it rained food? What if Earth was a cube? What if we had nine lives? What if bits could fly? It's absurd. If money grew on trees, if we didn't have knees, if we walked through life slightly magnetical, it's absurd. Absurd hypotheticals. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. Guys, for our, for our wonderful 99th episode, we're going to take a complete left from what we normally do and talk about animals. I'm going to run out of animals eventually. Yeah, so this, I think this one came about just because we had so many different animal questions that couldn't quite make a full episode. So we fell back on our good friend, the grab bag. So today, instead of answering just one hypothetical question, each of us is taking a different hypothetical question about animals, you know, overarching theme here. And um, we all did our own answer. We all each we each covered one answer for one question instead of all covering the same question. I don't know why that was hard to explain. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty simple concept. Very simple concept. So, Ben, you had our very first question. So why don't you start? Yeah, so the question that we are we are leaning off with here is, what if the entire world was powered by hamsters? Um, and we mean like literal electrical power. <laughs> I thought you were going to say hamsters again. Literal electrical hamsters. <laughs> literal electrical hamsters. I mean, I guess technically it is literally electrical hamsters. Kind. I mean, no, it's not literal electrical hamsters. I mean... It's figurative. I don't know. Anyway, English is hard. Point being, we're going to power the world with hamsters. So I guess to get started, we have to figure out how much power a hamster can actually generate. So figured the cleanest way to do this with regards to like, you know, hamster power and something is running on a wheel because that's the thing that hamsters just do naturally. Well, not, I guess, naturally, but hamsters run naturally. We put them on wheels. They figure it out. You get the idea. So we can calculate the amount of work that a hamster does running on a wheel right so work is is basically just the force you know applied to something over a distance it's measured in joules while one joule is the force of one newton acting on object in the direction of that force's motion for a distance of one meter so pretty similar simply you can break work down into just force times distance so in this case the force applied is going to be just the mass of the hamster so that's what the hamster is moving the most popular like pet hamster breed is the Syrian hamster or golden hamster or teddy bear hamster. It's very cute, um, which is what you think of when you think of a hamster. It's that hamster, right? An adult Syrian hamster weighs 4.2 to 4.4 hour ounces or around 120 grams. The distance it's moving is going to be just the distance the hamster moves, which it turns out that Syrian hamsters will actually run around 9 kilometers or 5.5 miles per day, which is absurd just to, I want to put put it out there that that's absolutely bonkers, right? Like hamsters are really little. Yeah, <laughs> I guess kilometers are it's bigger more than for I them. move around. Yeah, right, right, exactly, right. Like it's pretty embarrassing when you think about it. <laughs> so we can use that. We can figure out that the work done by a hamster in one day is ten thousand five hundred eighty-four joules, um, which to move it into a unit that's used actually for power is point zero zero two nine four kilowatt hours. So what's a kilowatt hour? I feel like we talked about this at some point in the show before, but just to review, a kilowatt hour, it's pretty simple. It's the amount of power used if you're using one kilowatt of power for one hour. I know, it's complicated. I like how you like preface that by like saying we talked about it before and that it was complicated and you're going to come up and then it's like, yeah, it just set, it's the unit. Is what it's it is. literally <laughs> exactly what it sounds like. It's literally just the two things in the name. Sometimes science makes things a little bit easier and I appreciate it. So we have our, our power generation, but it's actually not quite that simple because when you generate power through a mechanical process like this, you're going to have losses. This is just because these these systems aren't perfect, right? So to start off, you're going to lose some power just because of the the motion of the wheel, right? It's not moving perfectly smoothly. You're going to lose some some power that way. I didn't, I'm not going to lie. I couldn't find an exact like amount of, or like percentage of power lost from a hamster wheel. For some reason, that number wasn't available online. So what I use instead for, for these losses is I found an article on bike generators that described the losses from, from that, which is pretty much the same, you know, principles. Um, so we're just going to use those numbers instead. So you got the loss from the wheel and the bike generators, that loss is around 10 to 20% of the power generated. 
you're going to need a battery because hamsters are nocturnal. And I want to use my power not just at night, personally. So we're going to need to store it in a battery. Reverse solar power problem. Right, exactly. If you have if you have hamsters and a sun, you can power anything you want to. Well, any time you want, not anything. <laughs> well, okay. I'm going to point out, if you have a sun, you can probably power anything you want to. <laughs> okay, fair. Fair. And enough right. hamsters, so continue. Yeah. Um, in that ba- in the battery, you're going to lose ten to thirty five percent of the of the power as well. Um, and then finally, to get it out of the battery, you're going to need a converter to move it back into alternating current, and that's going to lose another five to fifteen percent. So your total loss is somewhere between forty two and sixty seven and a half percent. Which side note, this is why bike generators suck, <laughs> because you have to do a lot of work to get even less power than you should expect you should be getting. So anyway, best case scenario, let's say we're getting down to 42% loss, that's going to give us 0.0017 kilowatt hours. So let's give some context for that number. So something we all have to, I assume we all have to do because we're doing a podcast. How much do you need to charge your phone? So I found a test where someone had basically measured the drain of their phone during an overnight charge. So they use an iPhone 6 Plus and that the charging took on average 19.2 watt hours. So our hamster is doing 0.0017 kilowatt hours, which is 1.7 watt hours, which means that your one hamster is going to take 11.3 days to charge a phone, which is not ideal. However, I'm going to say that that is the pessimist glass half empty way to think about things. I'm going to say as an optimist that what it means is that if you have 12 hamsters, you can charge your phone in one night. Ah, there you go. Ah. (laughs) So (laughs) from there, let's scale up a little bit. So what if you want to power your whole home with hamsters? So in 2018, the average annual electric consumption for a U.S. like residential utility customer. So that's not just like full homes, it includes apartments and stuff, but it's going to be a pretty good average was 10,972 kilowatt hours per year, which is about 30 kilowatt hours per day. So using that 0.0017 kilowatt hours per hamster, we're going to need about 17,647 hamsters to power a home, which is getting a little a little problematic because you're probably going to need several more homes to store that many hamsters. But we can still go bigger because really we need to, you know, powering one home is not enough because we're powering everything. So I figured that the, the, the obvious next step would be to see how many hamsters it would take to, to replicate a nuclear power plant since... Not as much of our power as nuclear probably should be, but a decent chunk is. So that's that's a good starting point. So the smallest nuclear power plant in the United States is the R.E. Genna nuclear power plant in New York. Um, has a single reactor, so that's a pretty good pretty good test case for for our, our hamster system. In 2018, that power plant generated four billion six hundred eighty nine million four hundred forty thousand kilowatt hours which is about 2.7 trillion hamsters worth. Um, oh, wait. Oh, we're going to have to cut this because that's a year. Hold on. <laughs> oh, wait. My entire answer is wrong. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's not. It's not entirely wrong. But I have to do some math really quickly. Hold on. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad I caught that as it happened instead of like <laughs> right after Chris started doing his answer or something. It's not a giant water drop situation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh my god, that one. So, in 2018, uh, this this plant generated a total of about 4.7 trillion kilowatt hours, which is about 12.8 billion kilowatt hours per day. So in hamster power, this is going to require around 7.557 billion hamsters. Um, Which, admittedly, it's a lot, right? Like, it's a lot of hamsters. It's like a hamster per person. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so we're getting into some some scale problems, which speaking of, we obviously have to put all these hamsters somewhere. So if hypothetically, like we do on this show, we are going to make this this hamster nuclear plant, how big would it have to be? Uh, So from what I can see, the minimum humane hamster cage size is about two cubic feet. They recommend like, it's like like one by two feet, like rectangle that's a foot tall. So that's going to be about 15 billion cubic feet. Renting a warehouse, the cubic foot cost is around 25 to 45 cents per cubic foot. I'm assuming this is per month. I couldn't actually find that stated anywhere. I looked. I looked in like 
a bunch of places and they all just quoted the same prices but never how frequently so whether it was building it or buying it or renting it right i i think it's i'm assuming from the context it looked like a rental so i'm going to assume it's rental per month um which means that we'd be spending about 1.9 trillion to 3.4 trillion dollars wait Billion dollars, sorry, lost my units. One point nine billion to three point four billion dollars on hamster storage every month. Although admittedly, it probably costs more than that to to run a nuclear. Uh, no, it doesn't, it doesn't cost more than that to run a nuclear plant. No, saying. not a billion. It does dollars. not. No, that would that would be the the nail in the coffin for nuclear power, wouldn't it? Yeah. And yeah, and the average warehouse in twenty nineteen was about one hundred eighty four thousand square feet and roughly thirty feet tall. So it'd be about twenty five hundred warehouses full of hamsters. Um, obviously, we're ignoring, you know, food and water and, oh, God, the poop problem. Oh, we have a poop problem. <laughs> but but I guess overall, it would be, you know, obviously, expectedly pretty impractical to run everything off of hamsters. And just because I couldn't help myself, I also, of course, had to calculate how many hamsters it would take to power the entire United States. I'll just jump for the, the end. It's about 6.4 trillion hamsters. I honestly don't think there's that many hamsters in the world. Yeah, I was going to ask that. What's the population of hamsters? Yeah, so I really tried on that one. I knew that was going to be a question that came up. I couldn't find that. The closest I could find was an estimate of 300,000 hamsters as pets in the UK in 2018, which, I mean, that means there's definitely a lot of hamsters in the world, Like, but it's definitely in the scale of like millions, not trillions. I think if there were trillions of hamsters in the world, we probably wouldn't notice. So... Overall, I think the big thing we've learned here is that hamsters are pretty inefficient at generating power. Slackers. Um, although, <laughs> I did find there is one additional way we could actually generate power from hamsters. And that power has been generated from hamsters. Which is just by their natural movement. So, there was an experiment that uh, Rusin, Yang, Yongqin, Shangli, and Guangzhou, and, oh, and Zhonglin Wang did. <laughs> In 2009, there wrote a paper called Converting Biomechanical Energy into Electricity by a Muscle Movement-Driven Nanogenerator, where basically what they did was make tiny little vests out of these, like, <laughs> like conductive threads and then put them... Well, the first thing they did was put them on, like, their fingers and, and mime, like, clicking and, and typing and stuff. And, and basically... The, the stretching of the, the, the muscles created like piezoelectric potential, which then we were able to attach and actually generate 0.1 to 0.15 volts just from this, like these small movements. What they then also did was make a tiny vest and put on a hamster and did the same thing. Because I don't know, I guess that's the next step once you've done it on your hand. Like. <laughs> I'm imagining, isn't there like a movie? It's reminded me of like a spy hamster movie that I think exists. Uh, there was that one. I think it was, was it Guinea it was like Pigs? G-Force or something? G-Force. It was Guinea Pigs, right? Hold on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is hamsters. It was Guinea Pigs. Yeah. I think it was G-Force. I'm glad that G-Force, if you Google G-Force, I don't know if this is because of my search history or just the world in general. If you Google just G-Force, the film is the second thing that comes up. Which is really funny. Nicolas Cage was in this? <laughs> yes, this is exactly the movie I was imagining. And Steve Buscemi. Wow, this is something. Sam Rockwell, Tracy Morgan, Penelope Cruz. Well then, okay. That's something. I'll say it's also the second result in my Google history, in my Google search. So it was directed by Hoyt H. Yeatman. <laughs> Yeatman! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that is the only thing he has directed, although he did work with Jerry Bruckheimer on Armageddon, Con Air, and The Rock. So that's, you know, apparently he was a visual effects guy before this. And mm. I would guess also a visual effects guy after this. Well, he clearly wasn't a director after it. <laughs> yes, no, this is literally the only thing he has directed. I like that on, on the Wikipedia page, it notes that GeForce role director notes debut film. That is true. Also only film. And best film. But his worst film. Yeah. And his longest film. It it's all all true. Um, what was I even saying? Jesus, the vests. You're the talking vests. about the vests. Anyway, yeah, I guess you could also put a little vest on the hamsters so that you get some extra power. I couldn't get any like this is obviously not a thing that people have done beyond this one study, and they didn't have any convenient numbers there, or really all that many numbers at all. They were pretty much just focused more on like it working than the power generation from the hamster. That wasn't really the goal. So. 
I couldn't get any good numbers on how much we'd in- increase our generation by. I'm not going to lie. I don't think it would be that much. Why not they put this material on like people instead of so hamsters? I think that's that was the 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 I, I remember hearing about this like in Wired back when it first happened. I, I think I think the idea eventually was that you'd, you'd buy like uh, like a hooded sweatshirt or something that would be made with this material in it. And then you could like plug your phone into it as you like walk around and you charge your phone. I just think it's some combination of expensive and not good enough that it hasn't really come to fruition. It also might fall into the the, the technological sinkhole that is people don't want to wear something stupid. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, you could weave it in. I mean, there's Snuggies. Snuggies exist. It would. Yeah, I don't know. I guess overall, if if the world's powered by hamsters, we'd have a lot more hamsters around and... I guess that's probably a pretty clear takeaway, huh? I don't really have one other than that. I mean, I just need you to say trillions of hamsters at some point in, in this answer. That's all I wanted out of it. Trillions of hamsters. Yeah, we got there. <laughs> we got the stupid number of hamsters. Anyway, Chris, what did you do? So the, the question I covered was, what if your heart beat as fast as hummingbirds? So I'm going to start with the short answer. You would die. All right, cool. <laughs> all right, <laughs> my turn. Short answer. <laughs> the long answer, let's get more into it. You would die. (laughs) So a hummingbird's heart beats at, it it can, it varies a little bit. Like if they're flying, it can get up to 1260 beats per minute, which is 21 beats per second, which is crazy to me. What in the fudge? Yeah. Animals are cool. It is a cool fact. So the normal heart rate for a human at resting rate it ranges from 60 to 100 beats per minute, uh, depending on like how healthy you are. I'm going to say it can be lower than that also. My resting heart rate is like 40. Yeah, Ben, we get it. Your heart rate's low. <laughs> I run. Anyway, continue. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's the resting heart rate. The, so if you're exercising and stuff, obviously your heart rate's going to be higher. Um, so the the upper limit of like a healthy heart rate while you're exercising, it depends on your age. They usually say, they say to subtract your age from 220, and that's the beats per minute that your your system can handle. So what happens if you have a rapid heart rate? The medical term for a, a rapid heart rate is multifocal atrial tachycardia. And generally, a high heart rate in humans means that your heart is less efficient at pumping blood. Um, and it, it means that you're less healthy. And that in turn means that you're circulating less oxygen throughout your body. Even though your heart rate, is, your heart is beating faster, it's kind of counterintuitive like that. So, like athletes, they have they're healthier and they have lower heart rates. Ben, <laughs> well, yeah, that I I like to think that at athletes least. a strong word there. <laughs> it, it is. Thank you for calling me strong, Marcus. I said the word was strong. I mean, I'm gonna hear what I want to hear. <laughs> so why is it? Why is this like? counterintuitive thing happening why does a fast heart rate mean you're less healthy the reason is because if your heart is pumping faster it has less time in between pumps uh, for the chambers of your heart to fill with blood so each pump is pumping less blood which means that in order to pump the same amount of blood your heart has to work twice as hard Uh, and if if it's pumping less blood per beat that means it's pumping less oxygen per beat and less oxygen is getting circulated in your body. So when I say high heart rate, I mean like 130 is what they're talking about, 130 beats per minute. Obviously, 12, uh, 1260 beats per minute is way past that limit. So we're just like on a completely different level. And that level would probably kill you, as I alluded to in my short answer. But why doesn't this like why doesn't this kill hummingbirds? Why do hummingbirds... How can they exist with this fast heartbeat? Part of it has to do with the size of their heart. So they have the largest heart to body ratio by weight of any animal. Um, so their heart makes up 2.5% of their body weight. So since their heart is bigger, it doesn't have to pump the blood as far in, in the body. So it's easier to pump blood. And the other reason is because of red blood cells. So red blood cells are the primary way that we distribute oxygen throughout our body. And humans, so in men, they typically have 5 to 6 million red blood cells per microliter. And then women have 4 to 5 million per microliter. Hummingbirds have the highest concentration of red blood cells of any mammal. So they have 6.5 million per microliter. 
So that just means that they have more oxygen in their blood that's circulating around. So even though it's pumping faster, uh, and with with each pump, it's pumping less blood, the oxygen is more concentrated. So that's sort of why it works in hummingbirds. So let's assume that it works in us too, that we don't have this inefficiency problem where our blood, where our heart is is not really working the way it's supposed to. Let's assume that it's the same amount of efficiency, it's just faster. So if this is the case, that means that with each pump of the heart, we're still circulating the same amount of oxygen. It's just there's way more pumps. So we're circling way more oxygen than we actually need. And this is also bad. So if you have too much oxygen, it's what's called hyperoxia. And short-term effects of this, so you can get uh, oxygen toxicity. And symptoms of this are nausea, vertigo, and severe spasmodic vo- vomiting. That's the, the term oh, they use, no. spasmodic mm. vomiting. <laughs> and then another symptom of this is an increase in what's called reactive oxygen species, or ROS for short. Um, They're basically molecules that contain oxygen that react with biological tissue. So if these increase in your body, normally your body has antioxidants and combats these. But if it increases in your body, then these antioxidants can get depleted. And what happens is that these ROS molecules, they oxidize with your tissue and your organs, which is not a good thing. So they've tested overexposure of oxygen in various animals. And these animals see symptoms like irritation, congestion, swelling of the lungs, and potentially death. So just another way you can die. So that's why we don't have enough hamsters to power everything is because we're stuffing them. We're busy stuffing them with oxygen. Yeah. Test, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like this will help, but it doesn't. So why doesn't this over this abundance of oxygen kill hummingbirds? Because, again, we have a system that works in hummingbirds and they don't die. So the reason for this is because they have a super high metabolism. So excluding insects, hummingbirds actually have the highest metabolism of any animal. Um, It's actually 100 times higher than an elephant. So metabolism, you don't really know that much about metabolism. It's basically just a process of converting food into energy. And there are a lot of moving parts within metabolism that are related to metabolism. But one of the parts is called cellular respiration. And this is a part that basically takes the oxygen, uses the oxygen to break down the food. Um, so we don't have the abundance of oxygen anymore because it's using it to break down the food. So hummingbirds, they use this process to break down the nectar that they drink. So they drink a lot of nectar that has, that's high in sugar, and that in turn fuels their flight. That's, that's why they kind of need that much, that high metabolism is because they need to fly. So... Let's assume that we have this high metabolism and that we don't have the oxygen, the over-oxygenated oxygenated problem anymore. If that's the case, that means we're going to be burning a lot of calories because metabolism burns calories. And if we're burning a lot of calories, that means that we need to increase our intake of calories. So I couldn't find exact numbers on this for like oxygen consumption. I had to approximate. So um, hummingbirds consume about 10 times the amount of oxygen per gram of muscle tissue as an elite human athlete. That, that basically just means that uh, if we have this high metabolism, we would need to eat 10 times as much as an elite athlete in order to sustain ourselves. So I wanted to look at an example as I wanted to pick an elite athlete. And for the person I picked, I picked Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Mainly because I had covered this in a previous episode, so I didn't have to look up anything. I just looked at my old notes. (laughs) So in episode 59, I found that he eats 5,000 calories per day over seven meals. Freaking insane. Yeah, I know. Now with our our hummingbird metabolism rate, that means we would need to eat 50,000 calories per day. It's a lot of calories. Just to like put that into context a little bit, chicken nuggets. If you were to only eat chicken nuggets, you would have to eat 848 chicken nuggets per day. Or if you were to only eat Big Macs, you'd have to eat 89 Big Macs per day to reach Ugh. the 50,000 calories. It was hard to imagine the chicken nuggets, but the 89 Big Macs really sit in yeah. my stomach. Yeah, it's in a, I don't think it would sit in your stomach. <laughs> Not for that long, at least. <laughs> well, if you had a high metabolism, it would. Oh, fair enough. All right. Uh, it really does 
it's a small enough but large enough number that it's <laughs> comprehensible and still terrifying. I, yeah, I, I know what it feels like to eat that second Big Mac, and it doesn't feel good. Yeah, so you're going to have to eat a lot, but technically you could survive based just based on a caloric intake view, I guess. The problem is that if you have this high metabolism, metabolism is actually fairly inefficient in the way it converts energy, and a lot of that energy is released as heat. So about 75% of, of the energy that you convert from food is released as heat. So the average person without a high metabolism releases about 60 joules of heat per second. Now, if we are consuming 50,000 calories per day, we are going to be releasing about 1,800 joules per second, which is 30 times the normal rate. So over the course of a day, that would add up to um, about 157 megajoules of heat per day. Now, you might be asking, how much is that actually? Because I don't know... I, I don't know what a jewel is. <laughs> but I just but explained, explained it. it. <laughs> <laughs> it's how many kilowatt hours it is. <laughs> well, so in terms of heat, 157 megajoules is enough energy to raise 1,500 liters of water from 0 degrees Celsius to 100 degrees Celsius. So from freezing to boiling. Why did you use the most, like... <laughs> That's such a, a random amount of a random amount of of everything for that measure. <laughs> <laughs> that's the uh, that's the I looked up what a jewel is, and that's the comparison they gave me. <laughs> well, the, not exactly, but I scaled it up. Okay, fair enough. Well, the reason I I chose fifteen hundred liters of water, you might be asking, is because that's the typical amount of water that a hot tub holds. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> <laughs> now it all makes sense. Yeah. So if you are in a hot tub, it's completely insulated perfectly and you sit in it and you have this high metabolism and, in, and the water is at freezing temperature. By the end of the day, it will be boiling. <laughs> Girls, check this out. No, wait, just wait. <laughs> just wait. Just wait. Just wait. Just wait. Just wait. wait several day. hours. Just wait. Yeah. Just wait. Look, you can get in around like. <laughs> you can get it around noon. It'll be nice. It'll be perfect then. And then you're going to want to very much at one o'clock get out again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're not going to be having to worry about that because you probably already figured out, but you cannot survive this heat. <laughs> right. So I tried to look up like the combustion temperatures of skin. I couldn't find it. But in terms of water, up to 60% of the human body is made of water. And it's far less than 1,500 liters. So we would probably literally boil from the inside if we had this high metabolism. I mean, it'll be sweet release after the 38th Big Mac. Right. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'd probably rather die from starvation than boiling from the inside. But we have a lot of options for how we're going to die. So that was the short answer is we're going to die. But we have... We, we might die in a lot of different ways. You don't know. Yeah, there's not so much options as like... A bedding pool. <laughs> right. And that pool is going to raise to boiling in roughly a day. Yeah. That's the longest odds is the, is the <laughs> you drown in the hot tub you boil. Right. <laughs> so that's what I had. Marcus, what do you do? My question was, what if you were actually raised by wolves? So I thought this was actually just like a straight fictional thing. And it kind of is and it kind of isn't. So there, there's some real life examples of what um th they'll say raised by wolves but what they actually mean is feral children is the other technical term for them the most famous of which of which a lot of the raised by wolves things are like the, they had a movie and like some couple books and all that in the mid 40s marcos rodriguez pantoya was born and at the age of seven um he was sold to you know from his family to another family um, who then abandoned him, and then he was left out in the wilds. He survived in the, alone in the wild for 15 years until he was 22 years old. So going through his story, he did encounter wolves during this time. So there was stories of him being, you know, very young, and he would wander into a, like it was like, it was like a, I think it was like a storm, it was raining, and he wandered into a cave, not really, it was a wolf cave, but there were wolf pups there, and uh, he ended up, you know, lying down next to the wolf pups. Um, and when the wolf mother came home, 
um, instead of murdering him, um, actually kind of like helped him out. And she, you know, shared with him the meat that she had hunted that she was sharing with her, uh, with her pup. So that was kind of nice. So they, they do have that, what it, what it establishes, they do have that instinct to help, you know, they would help, a, a wolf mother would help a human child. Like, you know, they, they have that mothering instinct and can transfer over a little bit. So good news for that. You know, you could, the wolf won't just eat you generally. <laughs> <laughs> what i found interesting about this though is kind of like the problems he had coming back into society so like you know there's some obvious things like you know speech problems and like you know he forgot you know he would make animal noises and it's um he had trouble like, communicating and things there was a funny story of one of his early days back and i say back he was like arrested because people reported somebody wandering around in the woods and he got arrested and dragged away from the from the forest he didn't like decide to come back to civilization he was kind of forced to. But anyway, he was telling a story about one of the early days where there was uh, a radio was playing in his room when he woke up. And he thought people were literally trapped inside the radio. And he couldn't find like a door or a latch or anything. And he's like, oh god, those people have been in there for so long. And he smashed the radio open, which of course broke the radio. And the voices stopped. And he thought he murdered them. How, how long was he with the wolves? And like, what age did he come back? So he, age seven was when he was um, sold and abandoned. So age seven was when he started off in the woods. Um, and he was in the woods for 15 years until he was 22. Okay. And he, seven sounds kind of old. I'll, I'll say this. He did not have a happy childhood. So I imagine he got less development than some other kids did. But interestingly, because what happens is he's he becomes kind of, he became kind of a case study for psychologists because you're now taking the nature the nurture away from the nature so you can see what carries over for humans and what doesn't so one of the things you know he, he got back in civilization he was able to actually pick up um you know language again not without too much difficulty like i said he, he had a, he had weird accents and things and he learned all he had all sorts of animal sounds that he still liked to use but the biggest thing missing that he never really recovered was being able to respond to social cues because when we grow up of course, you're surrounded by people all the time. You know, you're always interacting with people, and you pick up all the things that are expected from you in a conversation. Like, you know what you what reaction you're going to get when you say things. You know, like you know all the subtle movements and all that. He just had like none of that. So you know, people say interacting with him was very difficult because he would just not that it was like unpleasant, but like he wouldn't look anybody in the eye. He would always like when he started talking to people, like straight down at the ground, and he would just you know go off on tents and all these buck wild things. So it was, it was kind of a study in the, again, kind of like the social interactions. The one big one that was a problem in his life that is kind of sad and I think a little funny at the same time was he would just get scammed a lot. Oh, <laughs> like, <laughs> like by people in the streets and I'm sure like any other, you know, like, here, try this. I'm selling this. I'm selling that. So went out into the wilds, came to civilization, had some trouble, difficulty adjusting, got scammed a lot. And basically... He just concluded that he liked living with the animals better. And he would, like, just as he, you know, as he aged and, you know, he was part of human society and people would, you know, come in for him for his story. And, you know, he, he moved to a few places to work in different places. But he would very regularly escape back into the wilds for periods of time because he basically lived with animals, lived with people, and concluded that people suck. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you say what year this happened? Like, what time period? He was born 1946, so this was around the 60s. Okay. But interestingly, the the Raised by Wolves um, story, you know, goes back and back and back. There's another one in the 1800s in France, and by 1800s I mean literally 1800, where the wild child known as Victor of Aveyron was found. They don't know how long he was living out in the wild, but he was definitely, you know, feral. And uh, what I like about this one is that he, you know, he came back into this, into civilization, and this guy, this medical student, Jean-Marc Gaspard Itard, hoped to study him. So he kind of just took the boy in, intended to you know, have him become civilized. So understand, you know, he was able to get him to understand some spoken language, how to empathize with other humans, and he was able to get him to teach read simple words. But it was getting him to speak that was the problem. So when it came to speaking, Victor learned two words, light and odu, which are the French words for milk and oh god. <laughs> which... <laughs> When I think about it, it's probably two of the more versatile words you could use. <laughs> and then it goes on to say, Atard soon became frustrated with the lack of progression and gave up. Quote from Atard, quote that Atard wrote of Victor before after giving up on him. 
Finally seeing that the continuation of my efforts and the passing of time brought about no change, I resigned myself to the necessity of giving up any attempt to produce speech and abandoned my pupil to incurable dumbness. <laughs> and I'm just like, good job, Gene. Way to, way to <laughs> stick with it. <laughs> then uh, the earliest one I have is the Hessian wolf children, which I couldn't find too much info about because most of it was actually in German. But this was a story from 1341 where reportedly... Um, again, this was 1341, so grain of salt. The kid was three years old when he started li- his life in the woods. And he they're saying this kid actually lived with a wolf pack. And the wolves would, you know, you know, share with him the meat from kills. And they would actually like, dig and build him a nest in the winter where they would, like, dig him a hole and bring him leaves and things that he could cover himself with to, you know, stave off some of the cold. It was written in a few places, like a few different sources from 1341. But... Who knows how accurate those are, I I would say. I would, again, take it with a grain of salt. And he had a kind of a similar experience to Marcos, where he was brought into civilization, kind of paraded around a bit, like he was brought to a duke as a um, a curiosity, as they say. And similarly, they tried to reintegrate into society, and he came to the same conclusion that, you know, living in the woods was better. People suck. <laughs> and th- those are really the three main examples I could find of... Uh, kids raised by wolf. There's a bunch more of feral, you know, feral children being raised by different things. Like there was a kid raised by a sheep, and then they have like you know bears and dogs and things. Uh, I separated dogs and wolves. A bunch of people were raised by like the family dog, quote unquote, after like the parents died or in an accident or something, and the and the family dog, you know, would help protect the kid, and then they would say the kid was raised by the dog, and it's like, well, were they kind of, <laughs> maybe sort of. My favorite though is. There's a, a boy named Hadara who was lost by his parents in the Sahara Desert at the age of two, where he was adopted by ostriches. Ooh. What? At age of 12, he was rescued and taken back to society and his parents. I feel like ostriches are pretty aggressive, right? Uh, apparently not if they're your parents. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was going to call this up. This one's like from like 2000. Like this is like a recent story. So... Maybe not wolves, but ostriches are the way to go. Because two is pretty freaking young. But I kind of want to look at... So, ignoring the, the the stories of other people, you know, who have lived in the wilds. What if you were actually raised by wolves from the very start? So, I kind of looked at the timetable for how the, how the wolf moms will raise their pups. And it's not ideal for humans. <laughs> <laughs> So from birth from birth to two weeks old, the pups are nursed by the mother. They wean on the milk. You know, they they uh, they suckle on the milk. So for the first two weeks, you know, humans and wolf pups kind of do the same thing: just chilling with the mom, drinking the milk. I'll give it to that. I assume the wolf milk won't be toxic. <laughs> Who knows? But generally, you you got those first two weeks are easy mode. Weeks two to five are slightly more complicated. So. At this point, at about three weeks, the the mom's already trying to wean the pups off the milk, which you might recognize as sooner than humans do that. And so, what they do to bring what they do feed their pups is they will go out and hunt, and they will bring back meat, but it's like regurgitated, so that they have regurgitated meat that they're feeding the pups. And so, I don't know exactly the consistency of what this regurgitated meat is going to be like. I'm happy I don't. (laughs) I'm happy I don't have a very clear mental image of what that's going to be. So this is where it's kind of iffy of would you be able to eat that regurgitated meat? I would assume no after three weeks. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably a no. This is also the behavior if you ever see like a wolf pup like licking its mom's mouth, like very insistently that's actually like the biological trigger for them to regurgitate the meat so when the pups want to get fed the the stomach meat they they lick the the mouth of the mother and then they do that it's also probably raw meat so that's not good (laughs) yeah not ideal i mean i feel like if you can get fed you have a chance (laughs) yeah i maybe (laughs) yeah eating raw meat is better than eating nothing right like yeah I mean, really, you you might be able to make it. Five to ten weeks is where you start having problems, though. So at five to ten weeks is when the the pups abandon the den, and so they all join up. All the all the pups in the pack 
go together in what they call a rendezvous site, where it's kind of just an area where they'll gather. And so the, the pups, this is actually when the pups will start going out for small outings with the, with the parents. The pups are starting to get their teeth, which means that they're no longer getting the regurgitated food after in this five to ten week period. So this is where you're already, now what's happening is that the pack is just bringing back meat from kills directly and just being like, flop, here you go. So you're going to have a tough time there <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a six-week-year-old. Among the other dangers is this is also when the pups will start playing aggressively. And so they, they do a lot, you know, wolf pups will do a lot of, uh, they say play, but they kinda, they're like wrestling and, you know, nipping and biting to kind of develop their skills. And so a lot of times they'll bite their parents too hard and then, you know, and that's you know, how they learn not to really be nasty. But, you know, if they are playing with each other and bite each other, um, if you are the tiny baby getting bit, not great for you. And then even if you could eat the food, this is also some pups will start exhibiting hoarding behavior where they'll, you know, lay claim on specific meats and kind of save it for later. Kind of mirror, like wolves will also hoard meat for the winter and, you know, kind of save it a little bit. So there's a lot of bad things going around for surviving there. And then after that, you're pretty much there's, you know, your, your chance to get even worse and worse. From four to eight months is when the pups actually are going with the pack and then they share and eating in the in the kills. So, like, they'll, you know, eat it right at the source. It won't be bought back to them. And then eight months plus, they're basically full-flown adults where they'll go hunting and pack with the pack as adults themselves. So, not ideal at all. <laughs> I guess I could have started with what Chris was saying, is, is if, you, if you're raised by wolves... You're gonna die. And you have, it sounds like you have a lot of options, just like me. You do have a lot of options. And even if you're, like, theoretically, you could still say you're raised by wolves if you, you know, at a younger age, like, you know, from two or three when you have your teeth and you could, you know, mimic some of these actions. The wolf pup mortality rate is 30 to 60%. So even if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing by being an actual wolf pup, your odds still aren't good. <laughs> and I guess I'm, well, I'm unfortunately concluding on that's kind of a sad fact now that I think about it, but I wrote it down and I said it out loud and now everyone's stuck with it. Yeah, we went from we went from a lot of hamsters and like fun, happy times to one person, a fully grown adult dies to a baby dies. <laughs> yeah, which means you should probably stop and go to the would you rather question of the evening. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris. Yes. Are you ready for a would you rather? Yes. <laughs> okay, don't sound so excited. Yes. Would you rather? Yes. Chris is stuck. Would you rather have a show on Animal Planet or the Food Network? Um, The Food Network, probably. That, actually, that's a pretty easy choice for me, the Food Network. Really? I thought you were going to say Animal Planet. Why? Do I feel like, do I seem like an animal person? Well, we've talked about how you don't like to cook and don't like currently have a working stove. We literally had a half hour conversation right before this podcast started about how you don't cook ever. I don't cook ever, but a lot of... To the point that you haven't gotten your stove fixed since you moved into your apartment. A lot of Food Network shows is just the guy going to restaurants and watching other people cook and then eating it. Okay, that's fair. Oh, so you want to be like the the junkie one where you're just like, oh yeah, reviewing food. But I feel like you have to know how to cook. I mean... At least a little bit. No, you just ask some questions. They're like, oh, this is how you do it. I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't know but, that. But I feel, like, I feel like you can't just eat a thing and say, yep, that's real good. Like every time. <laughs> you need food. Well, I can, I can describe why I like it. Oh uh, yeah, it's crunchy. <laughs> like that crunch. I mean, you don't have to know... Like in order to watch a movie, you don't need... In order to be a critic of a movie, you don't need to know how to make a movie. Yeah, but I, yeah. But what if you want to be a? Like, I guess it's not whether you're making a good show or not. <laughs> I guess that, yes, that's a good point. Like the the alter the alternative is having. Do you say Animal Planet? Yeah, Animal Planet. That would be like going on safaris and stuff. I mean, that sounds pretty cool too. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, that sounds pretty. Like, I was gonna say, I I, I want that, <laughs> but not like all the time. Is my life. Why not? Like, that's a cool vacation for, like, a summer, I think. If my job was to go and hang out, like, go on a safari or hang out with some animals and, like, visit, like, the woman who owns an elephant for, like, a few days and hang out with that elephant, 
I think my mental health would improve a lot <laughs> for a few days. Forever, I would I would go visit the animal lady every year. Every <laughs> every week, I would go hang out with an elephant. Are you kidding? When does that get old? Well, what are you going to be eating on this trip? Elephant. The local delicacies. Oh. There's food all around the world. <laughs> ben, what are your thoughts? Because you are the you are the most enthused about cooking. Yeah, as as I know, we discussed off air. I don't know how much I think we discussed it some amount on the podcast as well. I cook a lot. I really enjoy cooking. And yet, in spite of that, I'm still considering animal plan. I'm so confused by this, Chris. I don't... <laughs> I, a person who really enjoys cooking and food, I'm still considering the animal planet possibility. Like, I like food. I just don't like cooking food. I guess. I don't like the process of cooking because that's work. But I like eating. And p- people on Food Network shows eat. I guess that's true. I don't know. I, I would probably... I would probably say food, food network, but I like cooking. So like that, like that, it makes sense. I just, I don't know. So you'd be on a cooking show and I'd be on an eating show. I guess, is it more work to be part of a cook? Like, I'm trying to think what the, what the, what is the day to day of a cooking show versus the animal show? Like the cooking show, you go into the studio, you go into the kitchen and I guess you just kind of mill around for a bit and then judge for like 10 minutes. (laughs) Like... For like, are you, you're thinking of like one of those competition shows? Yeah, like or like or even like a, like a competition show is probably one. Like, you're, you, I think you're in the studio and you're just doing a lot of like because there's a lot of different types of Food Network shows. Right. Yeah. Because you have you have like the traveling around, you have the competition show, and you have the person cooking show. I would do any of those. I am down for all three of those. Right. Options. I could still have that traveling around thing if I do like a, an international food show. I feel like I would get bored of going to a lot of restaurants before I would get bored even visiting one elephant i mean you you have to eat anyway you're going to have to eat why not get paid for it but if i'm gonna have to travel to like you know around the country or to another country i want my end result to be that i'd rather be excited about going to go see the elephant than just being like oh i'm gonna go to another restaurant it seems like i would very quickly i feel like i would very quickly burn out and being like you know oh you're you're flying to california to go to the biggest steakhouse blah, 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 blah. i'd be like Okay. You'd be going to like the best of the best though of restaurants. Yeah, but like I also feel like Marcus's point is that if you are if you have your own show and you're traveling around to places to visit animals, you're still gonna you're not just gonna like go home and have a bowl of rice every night. Like Yeah, I mean I guess you can still eat interesting things and yeah. explore the area, but I mean it, it, might, it, it could also I don't think one is right or wrong, except the right one is animals. But <laughs> I think it's also like you know, it's a bit of personal preference. Like you clearly don't seem very excited about hanging out with animals at all. I mean, I enjoy going to the zoo every once in a while, but I'm not a huge animal person. I never watch the animal uh, planet. What's it called again? Animal <laughs> planet. planet. <laughs> <laughs> I never watch that there uh, animal <laughs> doohickey on the TV box. <laughs> like, when's the last time you watched Animal Planet? I watch Food Network all the time. Uh, he makes a compelling argument. I mean, it's not like I watch either of them very often. I do watch more cooking shows than animal shows, but... I'm more envious of the people that are going to hang out, like, that are, like, you know, you get to go to, like, backstage at the zoo and actually, like, cuddle with the tigers and things. I mean, a lot of Animal Planet stuff or, like, animal documentary stuff is them being out in the wild. Like, you see all the interesting stuff in the documentary, but a lot of it is just them sitting around doing nothing. Yeah, I could do that, too. And, like, waiting for an animal to come by. Well, it's it's the same way of, of you picking your show. I mean... If you want to say that's like the maybe the more boring one to do, but you could do the cool ones where you just like go like one of those really soft, like like soft news type shows where they just go visit the people that have cool animals, pets. And you're just like, I'm going to hang out with all your people's pets all year. Is that do they have shows like that? I actually don't know because I don't watch the Animal Planet. It could if you pitch it to them, Chris, go for it. <laughs> this is your chance. There's a market or like not like people's pets, but like, yeah, like animal, you know, handlers and things like they'll go and be like oh, hey, this is whoever, and they have a, you know, they take care of these animals in this zoo, and you go and hang, and you get to go inside and hang out with the animal. It's cool. I don't know. I'm excited about the animals. I'm less, I'd be less excited just going to a studio and, you know, or travel to go to restaurants. Both of those seem less appealing to me. I, I'm I'm definitely more in the food camp, but I expect to be alone in the food camp, and I'm very confused that Chris is also here. <laughs> it's like, what is Chris doing? I like food. I choose Food Network. <laughs> all right there we have it folks uh if you enjoy this and you want to help support us and our endeavors to go see animals or eat at restaurants 
uh, you can go to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash absurdhypotheticals and hit that become a patron button for just $1 a month. That is like 100 cents, but when I say it that way, it sounds like a lot more than it is. It's nothing. It's a dollar. It's like a quarter of a hamster. It's like four quarters of money. It's like a hundredth of a hundred dollar bill. It's a hundredth of a hundred dollar bill. Exactly. Barely any money at all. Um, you can uh, show your support for the show. And you get access to our behind-the-scenes episode, which we do every month. We review all the episodes. We do some fun, cool things. We've had guests on. Ben has drank spicy milk on one of them. Lots of cool things going on there. Um, it's a very cool, chill, hangout-type vibe. And I really enjoy doing them, so I want more people to hear them. But I still have put a paywall up, so I guess I don't want it that bad. <laughs> <laughs> you want money more. <laughs> um, but more importantly than all that is... This one's episode 99, which means next episode is episode one fragging hundred of this podcast, which is one, insane, and two, what in the heck, and three, when did that happen? Next week. Hey. But yeah, we are we are doing the mother of all lightning rounds. We are doing 100 hypothetical questions in hopefully 100 minutes. That's the goal. We're going to time ourselves. And we are timing ourselves because there's, def- there's a strict punishment if we do not finish the episode in those hundred minutes should we reveal the punishment now or not um, or should we keep it a secret until next week let's keep it a secret until next week i will say this i will i will say this as a way of preview one of the steps so we, it'll, it'll be a um <laughs> a consumption punishment i'll say and one of the steps includes filter out the solids so i am if we do not finish the hundred questions in the hundred minutes if we go over those hundred minutes we will need to consume the end result of that process we'll and need to filter out some sort of solid i was in for it and now that it's approaching and it's next like we're recording it next week i'm very very nervous well you didn't know about the solids <laughs> until i told you like a couple days ago yeah we've learned more <laughs> more details on the the punishment in the last last couple days and it's made it feel much more real yeah and i think we also spoiled what it is in, in the previous behind the scenes so if you want to find out and you're just dying curious you could give the dollar right now and check that out yeah if yeah, that would be released. So you could do that if you want an extra sneak preview. But in any case, Godspeed to us. We're going to need it. See you at episode 100. <laughs>